There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The late night lip service for lovers, loners, and lounge lizards. Yeah, well, where, where exactly is your accent from? The Late Night Alternative with Ian Lee. Oh, I've forgotten your name already, excuse me. On Talk Radio. Um, that is, um, well, that, that, well, this is the movie version of the song Radiohead from the movie, um, True Stories, okay, which is one of my favourite, favourite films. I saw it about 20 years ago and was like, wow, this is like, um, Head for the 80s. Um, and it, 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 uh, hallelujah, it's finally, finally been uh, released on a Criterion Collection DVD. It came out earlier this year, like last month, and I got it and it's packed full of... Extras, the original movie soundtrack is released for the first time. Talking Heads released a True Stories album where it's them doing the, the, the songs from the movie, and it's great. But this is the this is um, John Goodman and the whole cast doing the songs. And what I liked about that film was I had never seen it no. before, but you used it as a test of our friendship. Yes. Now, is she going to like this? Because if yeah. she doesn't, five years out the window. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. What a I, film. I, and I know a few of you have seen it as a, as a direct result. Anyway, the DVD is packed full of extras, as it should be. No director's commentary, disappointing, but the rest of it is packed full of extras. And I fell down a couple of rabbit holes in the extras. The first one was a gentleman called Spalding Gray, who plays the mayor in the movie. And I remember seeing it years ago and thinking, this guy is an incredible performer. He's doing these weird things with his hands. Um... And I've kind of fallen down a Spalding Grey rabbit hole. Amazing um, performance artist and actor. Does Did a series of one-man shows. Did a, did a movie with Nick Brumfield, who we love. Um, really tragic life. Uh, committed suicide. I think it was about 10, 15 years ago. Um, so I've kind of been stocking up on books on DVDs. And then um, uh, I saw this um, Tobolowski character kind of popped up as, as one of the, the people uh, involved who... Uh, Supposedly, you see, you see the uh, you see the movie, and it's Stephen Tobolowsky written by, and he's on there as part of the extras. Going, yeah, didn't write the movie, <laughs> and, and and I kind of was googling him, and he's been in over two hundred movies, and I recognised him, of course, from Groundhog Day, and uh, the weekend I discovered his wonderful podcast, and I was listening to four of those. You listened to about three or four of them as well. I did. I was tidying my wardrobe. I folded everything. It's a good job my kids didn't come in; they would have been folded up, put away too. <laughs> it's such a good podcast. It's so good and I just on an off chance sent Stephen uh, an email and Stephen foolishly replied and agreed to come on the show this evening and uh, we have Stephen on the line now good evening Stephen good evening Ian (laughs) it's so nice to talk to you man honestly and your voice is so familiar because I've seen you in I've not seen all 200 movies let's be honest but I've seen you in so many movies I've seen you in the Goldbergs the 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 series that's kind of just showing over here and um I've got to say man your podcast the Tovolowski letter uh, Files. files I keep calling it letters files what a joy man how was that fun to do well, it, it's it's still being fun. It was it was kind of an accident the way the whole thing happened. Uh, 
Yeah, this is another story, I guess. In, <laughs> in 2008, yeah. I was r- riding a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. <laughs> and we're off! And, yeah. <laughs> and we're off. And, and this is absolutely true. This is no exaggeration. Is that I got hit by a giant wind off the Atlantic Ocean that lifted me and my horse off the ground, <laughs> carried us several feet, dropped me on the other side of the road, and my horse kind of thought it was like God saying, giddy up. And that horse took off, and I got thrown onto a hardened lava flow somewhere on the other side of the mountain. Ouch. And, and I was, I know, I was going in and out of consciousness, and uh, I ended up breaking my neck in five places, and the middle vertebra was C4, what the pros call it, yes. C4, got crushed. So uh, when I got back to the United States, my doctor told me I had a fatal injury, which wow. was which was which was pretty. Uh, Shocking. It was, it, it, at, at first, I thought it was kind of a terrible misuse of the word fatal, because obviously uh, it wasn't. And I was scared. And then I thought, wait a minute. This is kind of inspirational. Oh, come on. What if what the doctor said was true and I really died on the mountain in Iceland? What are some of the stories I have never told my boys ab- about their dad? And so I started writing these stories. Uh, about first love and first adversaries and uh, Radiohead, et cetera, et cetera, like stories which became the Tobolowsky files yeah. as kind of a way so my kids would know who their dad was. And coincidentally, it'll come as no surprise to any parent listening to this, my children have not listened. <laughs> None of it. None of it. But it became it became a podcast that I guess has gone all over the world now, and of of these nutty, crazy but true stories. Um, and it, that's the Tobolowsky files. It is. It, they are beautifully told. The beautifully written. I, I do want to talk about true stories because it was. I was. I, I, I've devoured yeah. all of the extras on there, and I found. I, yeah. I, I found episode forty-four of your podcast, which is the one where you talk about uh, working with David Byrne, and 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 you you and your wife wrote the movie, gave him the movie, and then didn't hear anything for a year. Is that right? Well, well, uh, Beth wasn't my wife. She was my girlfriend of 16 years. Okay. And she had just, she had just won the Pulitzer Prize for dramatic literature wow. in America for her play Crimes of the Heart. And so Jonathan Demme, who did Stop Making Sense yeah. with David, really wanted to get Beth to write David's movie, True Stories. So Beth met with David, and she called me up and said, I, I have no idea what David is talking about. Uh, maybe you should come over and you talk to David. So I went over and talked to David, and I didn't understand quite what David was talking about. But on the wall of his home, which had no furniture in it, on the wall of his home, there were about 200 pencil drawings. And he said, could you turn these drawings into a movie? And I looked at them for about two hours, and I said, David, I'll tell you what, I'll go home, I'll write something, an outline or some sort of, and if you like it, you can hire me to do the movie. If you don't like it, you could keep whatever I write and use it anyway, whatever. 
So anyway, that night I wrote 35 pages of outline and scenes and character descriptions from true stories that became true stories. David hired me, and then he called up Beth and said, well, if I have Stephen – if I have Stephen working on the structure and the characters, Beth, can you be working on the movie too? So Beth and I wrote the first draft of True Stories in 19 days, which is not a lot of time. No, that <laughs> sounds quite speedy a for, a, for a movie sc- treatment or script, yeah. Right, and we gave it to David, and then, as you have mentioned, we did not hear from David for a year, a year. <laughs> and and then I'm driving through the Hollywood Hills and I hear a knock, knock, knock on my car window. And it's David Byrne on a bicycle beside <laughs> my car. And he, he's, he's gesturing for me to roll down the window. So I roll down the window. He goes, uh, Stephen, uh, sorry, uh, I haven't been back in touch with you. You know, we've been on the road with the talking heads, and I got your script, and we changed. I changed a lot of it. I, I, I changed most everything. But are you going to be home this afternoon because there's something I really want you to hear? And I said, sure. So I went home, and David went and got his guitar and came over. And he said, I really like the story you told me about how when you were young, you had this experience where you heard tones in your head. So I wanted one of the characters in the movie to have that. And he sat there and said, and I wrote this song for them. So he played me in my living room, the song Radiohead. And I went, damn, not only was it a fantastic song, but this event, this kind of psychic event, happened to me when I was 19 years old. And this really when happened, was... didn't it, Stephen? They, 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 you, you, oh, again, it... you recount this in the podcast. Kind of, a, you, you just found yourself saying stuff and answering questions that were absolutely spot on and, and with stuff that you couldn't have known. It was horrible. It was, really? it was one of the worst periods of my... It, it began... We, we were on a movement retreat, so I'm 19 years old, and uh, my movement teacher uh, takes us out on a retreat, which sounded really stupid. It, it sounded like we were going to be doing the same thing we did in class, but closer to bugs and farther away from good toilets. <laughs> sounds awful. And so at, at, at the end, we're sitting around the fire, and he says, I want everyone to say the first thing that comes into your mind. And my teacher is at 12 o'clock, if you imagine that clock, and I'm at 6 o'clock. And people around the circle, the the book Lord of the Rings was out at the time, Mm -hmm. so they were going like uh, Frodo, and then the next person said like (laughs) Gandalf, and the next person said Frodo, and then the next person said, well, he just took my word. (laughs) And my teacher said, don't filter, just say what you want to say. Okay, Frodo. And so it's coming around to me, and I'm hating this exercise. Mm. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And then I hear this sound in my head, like this tone in my head. And the teacher said, Stephen, what would you like to say? And I looked at my teacher, and I said, I, I think your name is not your name. I think you're operating under an assumed identity, and your real initials are either JK or JL pause. Then the teacher goes to the next one. Uh, All right, you're up next on. He goes, "Uh, Gandalf, and it goes back around the circle. So we're all breaking, and I'm going to my car, and out of the shadows, my teacher comes and says, Stephen, 
why did you say what you said about me? And I said, I'm sorry. Uh, you just said, don't filter, say what you want. He said, because it's true. Oh, my God. I have an assumed name. I came here. I changed my name, and my initials are JK, like you said. So I ask you, how did you know that? And I said, I, I have no idea. He said, has anyone ever done psychic experiments with you? And I go, no, no. I mean, this is Texas in what, like I'm 19, so it's like the 70s. There's no psychic experiments. So I go over to his house one day, and it was one of the – he asked me to come over to do these psychic experiments. I asked if I could bring Beth who was a freshman at the time, and I was dead in love with her. Yeah. And this was kind of our first date. <laughs> I took her over to our teacher's house. We're holding hands over this Japanese prayer stool. And he says, okay, Stephen, now just tell me what you see. Well, I didn't see anything. I heard things. Yeah. So I hear this sound, and I say, I think there's a five-year-old over by your fireplace, and there's a 40-year-old woman on the telephone. And my teacher lets go of my hands, like starts walking around the room in a panic. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he says, I was babysitting my five-year-old nephew. He was over by the fireplace. I told him it wasn't safe. He ran out the front door and was hit by a car. Oh, no. My sister, on her 40th birthday, called on the telephone you pointed to and committed suicide. Oh, God. At this point, I'm starting to cry. And – uh Beth and I, I drive her back to the dorm, and she says, what do you know about me? And and I said, nothing. And she says, well, maybe we should hold hands and you should concentrate. Fantastic. And I'm thinking like, hey, you know, there could be something. This is working. Stuff. <laughs> now it's going. So I hold Beth's hands, and, and I said, uh, Beth, I don't see anything. And she looked at me and says, no, no, no. You don't see things. You hear things. Do I make a sound? And I said, yes, Beth, you do. And I said, and she said, what do, what do I make? And for some reason, this came out of my mouth. The, these, this was pretty much word for word. I said, you have three tones in the male range. Male tones are higher than female tones. Your three tones are in harmony. Wow. She said, what does that mean? I said, well, it either means you are sufficient unto yourself or you always get your way. And Beth looked at me and said, we're going to make a fortune. <laughs> Let's be partners. Look, I'll go gather people from the theater department together. I'll bring them to you. You hold their hands. You listen to you. Whatever you want to say, we'll charge a quarter each, maybe even a dollar. And then you say this, whatever, this, this is great. And we'll put the money in a jar and we'll save it. And I'm thinking like, man, this sounds like a relationship to me. <laughs> And so Beth started bringing people from the theater department over, but it was grim. I would hold people's hands, and I would say things that were awful that I, there was no way I could know. I would say to someone, uh, you've just had a very close death in your family. You're going to get an inheritance right now. There are discussions as to how you're going to invest the money. He was absolutely freaked out. Wow. I'm holding one one girl in my theater department's hand, I go, uh, you're trying to get over the fact that you were sexually abused by your father. Uh, it, 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 it haunts you, oh. you, you, you know, and she breaks down into tears, runs. It was not fun. It was, and, and the more I listened and the more I heard these tones, 
the more tones came into my head. And this, uh, when David Byrne came up, first came over to our house, uh, he wanted to know if we had a swimming pool. And because Beth had just won the Pulitzer Prize, oh, yeah. You had a few we quid a going. You were living the fancy yeah. life. The fancy life. We had a swimming pool. And if you go onto YouTube yeah. and see his video of Road to Nowhere, all the water swimming pool underwater scenes were shot at our home. Well played. So while David is shooting Road to Nowhere, uh, we're talking about what he's working on next. And he mentions he wants to do this true stories thing about people that have these incredible events that have happened in their life that are impossible to be true, but are true. And that's when Beth said, well, you should talk to my sweetie because he hears tones. And David looked at me and kind of laughed because you hear tones. And I go, well, you know, so it was a long time ago. And, and that was the genesis of the story that David ended up putting in the movie yeah. and wrote the song about. So in a way, David Byrne, bless his heart, chronicled the beginning of my relationship with Beth. Isn't that beautiful? And, and it's wonderful. It, 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 that part of that part of the story is wonderful, and of course, David's a genius. So I'm very happy he wrote when, the song. Well, of course, of course, for those who don't know, the the band Radiohead got their name from that. So your your you know early romance with Beth continues on throughout their their work. When was um, I've got so many questions. When did the tones stop? Have they stopped? No, no, but but. Uh, I, I quit actively seeking to right. hear tones, but I, 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 I still hear them. I could still hear them. Now, I have no idea how I translate the tones into saying something meaningful. Right, yeah. But, but, but like, here is a horrible, horrible story. It, it was, you know, it seems like, Ian, you just bring the terrible story. I'm so sorry. It. We're going to go to the I, light in a minute. I promise, no. Stephen, we will go to the light. Uh it was my birthday was coming up, and my wife Ann said, "I'm going to now." Annie and I, we've been married 30 years. She says, "I, you know, I have a little birthday thing planned for you," and uh, I said, "Okay." And I hear this thing in my head. I said, "I tell you, you know, you're always joking about my es, you know, the ESP and all this stuff." I said, "I'll tell you what, it's it's all just foolishness. I'm going to write on a piece of paper what the birthday." is what the birthday is and then we'll go and have our birthday party and you'll come back and see what i heard in my head and you'll know that it's all just a crock so i got a piece of paper and i wrote we're going to drive down to downtown los angeles to the concert hall and ann got me permission to play on the grand piano of the stage of disney hall and so anyway i write that and seal it in an envelope, and Anne says, well, we're going to lunch at a really nice place, so maybe you should dress up in a suit or something no. like that. God. I'm saying, oh, okay, okay. And, and, and she says, the restaurant is kind of downtown, so why don't we just kind of head toward, oh, you know where we go to the concerts, you know, Disney Hall? You know, no. if you park in the basement of the concert, the restaurant's right across the street. And I am about to Puke. Do you have that word in England? Yeah, we have the word puke. Yes, we I got am it. about. I'm just like going absolutely pale. 
We go up the elevator, and there's the custodian of the concert hall, and he goes, right this way, sir. And they open the doors. There's the grand piano on the center of the stage at Disney Hall. A friend of mine has come from home with all of my music, comes up on stage, and I get to play on the stage of Disney Hall for about an hour and a half. And Incredible. I'm thinking the whole time, I'm going to get murdered when we get home. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. Anne came home, and she was laughing, and then she opened up the envelope and went absolutely pale. And she was certain that either I had overheard her phone conversations yeah. or had been spying on her computer or something. And I said, no, baby, no. It just, it just for some reason, that's what I heard, and that's what we had. But but those kind of things happen a lot. It's it's incredible. And here's the thing, you know, I, I, me and Kath, we don't normally tend to believe this stuff. But, 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 when we heard it in your podcast, I'm telling it now, it, it, how can you doubt this? How can you doubt this experience? When was, let's move away from the, from the dark a little bit. When was the last time you saw David Byrne? Have you seen him at all recently? Did you see him when the I Criterion saw- were putting the DVD together? No, I didn't. I saw David about three years ago. I want to say maybe two, three years ago with Jeff Bezos. Uh, oh, we we were we were at a kind of conclave in Santa Fe, out kind of around Santa Fe, New Mexico, and everybody was. Pres- you know, Jeff Bezos brought together about fifty different people to present different entertainments for one another. Uh, that were kind of mind blowing, and David was one of the presenters, and and I was doing one of my stories for everybody. So I saw David again after that time, and uh, it was it was odd. <laughs> it was odd seeing David after so many years, uh, but it was fun. It yeah. was fun seeing him, and we ended up having a wonderful talk. This this actually may be the last dark question. Then we're going to take a break, if you don't mind, and then we will come back to the light. But 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 I, I, um, you, again, in the, the the true stories episode of your your podcast, you talk. Um, listen, I'm a I'm a former cocaine addict, right? I'm a, I'm a I'm a junkie. I'm in recovery and all of this, and I've never heard <sighs> anyone describe the, the what cocaine does in such a beautiful and devastating description you describe it something like it, it, it's energy that you are you've borrowed from your future that you have to pay back with interest and it's a very selfish act um and i just wondered i, I just wondered what your relationship with cocaine was was it an irregular thing what did you ever get a problem with cocaine or or, or was it just like every oh, now and God. then if you don't mind me asking no i don't mind you asking but ian it just bit me on the ass mm. it was and and it wasn't as bad as some of our friends. You have to remember, this was kind of the 1980s. And back then, it wasn't that cocaine was uh, addictive. It was that it was expensive. Right. That was the rap on cocaine. Uh, nobody ever thought, oh, you're going to get addicted to this stuff. It was like something that made you, you know, flirt with other men's wives. Yeah. That's that's all it was. And And so... I I would use it for a party. I was in a rock band at the time, and we would do it afterwards to party. And it got to be where I felt I really needed it uh, more than I wanted to need it. And like I said, other friends of mine went 
like you were talking before down the rabbit hole, other friends of mine, it really destroyed their lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I came up with a method of getting myself off of cocaine in which I, I, I had someone actually from London read my method and they used it and it, and it helped them wow. uh, un, undo it. And uh, if briefly what my method was, yeah. I said I wasn't addicted to cocaine. I was addicted to the cash machine that I needed to get the cash to buy the cocaine. Right. So maybe if what I did is I spent the exact same amount of money I was spending on cocaine every week, but I had to spend it on me. I couldn't I couldn't wow. save the world. I, I couldn't do anything. I had to spend it on me. And the first week it was easy. Yeah. You know, the first week I like bought a set of encyclopedias. <laughs> I bought some Cuban cigars. <laughs> I bought like Paradis brandy. Second week it was not so easy. I so I'm I'm buying like some Italian suits. It was and, and I have to keep spending this money every week on me of of new stuff. And it became exhausting <laughs> spending money on myself. Yeah. And after eight weeks, I said, I can't do it anymore. I'm stopping this. And I, I, I realized that for the last eight weeks, I had not done any cocaine. And I had lost the physical need for cocaine. Brilliant. And I had transformed myself into a narcissistic actor with a closet full of Italian suits, the richest brandies in the world, Waterford Crystal. It didn't improve my personality, but I wasn't addicted to cocaine Good. anymore. Stephen, can we go to a quick break and then come back? Is Are you okay to hold on for a minute? Yes, sir. Fantastic. Thank you so much indeed. Stephen Tobolowsky we're talking to. Uh, go and download his, um, uh, his podcast, The Tobolowsky Files. Um, and I've got so many questions. I want you to join in as well, Kat. Oh, yeah. I know you've got a lot of questions as I well. Um, uh, we, we, we're we're going to get the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is all we're going to get. But what a thrill. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. This is The Late Night Alternative with Ian Lee and Catherine Boyle on Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Listen. Phone. Talk. Talk Radio. We'll get you talking. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365 day returns. Excuse me. Oh, Dad. Hello, I'm Martin Kellner. And I'm his daughter, Ruthie. We do a podcast. It's called Ruthie, Me and My Dad. In which I tell him how he's wrong about most things. And I explain to her who the Bee Gees were. It's on Acast and Apple Podcasts. And all your favourite podcast providers. It's a unique generation gap conversation between a baby boomer dad... And his Generation Z daughter. That's Ruthie, Me and My Dad. Brand new episodes every Thursday. Uncut after-hours conversation for the up-all-night generation. The Late Night Alternative with Ian Lee on Talk Radio. We'll get you talking. Well, this is a thrill. There are, there are podcasts, there are books that have been written. Stephen's written books as well, and, and of course there is a movie. Stephen, before we go on to the next proper question, I need to ask, Tobolowski, Tobolowski, which is the correct one? Because I've said both, and I, and I was going to stick with one, and I didn't, and I'm sorry. I, I think I think they're both good. I, I went and asked my uncle Nathan, who was the historian of our family, the same question. I said because they all pronounce it differently. I said, "Is it Tabalowski, Tabalowski, Tabalowski?" And he said, "You can pronounce it any way you not want because it's not really your name." Oh, blimey! And I went, "What?" <laughs> he says, "Yeah, when grandfather came to America, he came through Galveston, Texas, not Ellis Island." And he didn't speak the English very well, and the the guard who was bringing him into the country didn't speak speak the Yiddishkeit or whatever grandfather was speaking. And so he asked, uh, who are you? And grandfather only know the who, vo, from German, meaning where, not who, who, but where yeah. are you? Thinking he was saying, where are you from? And so in his grandfather's way, he said, I'm Abraham. From Tobolsk, oh. and so the guy didn't understand him, right. and so he said, "Okay, from now on, you're Abraham Tobolsky." So, according to that legend, Incredible. I got my name the same way Don Corleone got his name <laughs> in The Godfather. Incredible, Catherine. You had, you wanted to ask Stephen something. There's so much we want to ask, but go on. You oh, wanted well, to first ask. of all, I wanted to say thank you for telling us about your mother. No, the podcast, the, the bits about your mum were great. The David Byrne going to your uh, family home and being offered an array of drinks several times had me uh, in tux. It was so funny. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, my mother is uh, magnificent. If if you're listening to the podcast, uh, one of the first podcasts I wanted to do about my mother was, I think, the fourth one, number four, called The Alchemist. And And here in America, National Public Radio named that podcast as one of the top recorded podcast wow. done so that's a good one to introduce you to my mother brilliant because it's pretty hilarious and pretty uh heartbreaking it's pretty great yeah actually just wonderful thank you you paint such beautiful pictures i also wanted to ask you i know you've worked with many greats and uh i know ian wants to ask you about steven seagal at some point <laughs> Yes, I do. But. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask you about Gérard Depardieu because uh, I was a languages student in the mid-90s and Gérard Depardieu seemed to do the impossible, which was kind of crossover. As a man who wasn't a matinee idol and ha- didn't have great English, he crossed over and he became quite famous in America. And I know you worked on a film with him. Yes, uh, My Father the Hero. We did that in the Bahamas and I did that with my wife, Anne. She played my wife in the movie, oh, and wow. I think it was one of Katherine Heigl's first roles. I think uh, Kathy Heigl was uh, maybe 
early teens, 11, 12, 13, around in there. She plays the female lead in that. And Gerard, uh, I was a huge fan of his. Mm-hmm. And we, we we were shooting at the Ocean Club, I know, in the Bahamas. And I had specifically learned this piece of Mozart that was used as the soundtrack of one of his films. And so in between takes, uh, I went over to the grand piano that was there at the party and I started playing this Mozart piece. And Gerard came over and said, that sounds so familiar. And I said, Gerard, it's a song from your last movie that came out. He goes, oh, oh, that's wonderful. I, uh, we got to be about three in the morning and I started playing the Moonlight Sonata. Whenever you see uh, anything in a movie that takes place at night, you got to figure the actors were up all night. So it's about three in the morning. We're on the beach in the Bahamas, moon and stars, and I start playing the Moonlight Sonata uh, just in the background in between shots. And one of the Bahamian men who was an extra in the movie working as a waiter uh, came up to me and said, that is the most beautiful song I've ever heard. Is there a recording of it? Wow. And I said, oh, yeah, there, there are lots of recordings of it. He says, well, I'm getting married next month, and I would like this song to be played in my wedding wow. because it's the only song I've ever heard that's as beautiful as my wife. Oh, oh. well played. Ladies what and gentlemen, we have a winner. There we go. <laughs> Help me, please. Uh, Gerard on this movie, Gerard Depardieu, I, I always thought he was the greatest actor in the world. His, um, his, uh, we, we had so much fun shooting the movie and, uh, it was such a treat for me to be so close to really at that time in my life, I thought he was the greatest actor in film. So to work with him was such a treasure and such, it, it was one of the great moments for me. Um, Stephen, why acting? How did you get into acting? Because you say you grew up in Texas. Um, yeah. I can't even imagine that, you know, it, 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 we think of Texas, we think of, you know, big men with big hats and oil and, or, you know, kind of manly pursuits. Not saying acting isn't manly, but the, the arts and creativity and performing doesn't kind of strike me as a, a normal Texan endeavour. So how did you get into acting? Oh, this, Ian, this is really a stupid answer. This is This is going to challenge everyone. <laughs> I got into acting because when I was five years old, I thought monsters were real. And I loved monsters. I loved Godzilla, and I loved Dracula and the Wolfman. And I thought if I became an actor, I could hang out with these monsters. And that propelled me through my early years doing plays around, you know, I'm getting ready to work with Godzilla, hopefully someday. Mm -hmm. And then I got to college. And well, in in I don't want to jump anything because it's all pretty grim. And I got sick when I was 13 years old, and I couldn't play anymore. I I couldn't uh, do sports. I couldn't go outside. So I spent a lot of time indoors, and for about two years. And I began reading plays. Yeah. And I began thinking, well, I could act. That's indoors. And I became one of the big actors at our high school. 
And then I went to college and I thought acting was noble. It was the first time that I encountered Shakespeare and Chekhov and Shaw Mm -hmm. and all those great, great writers. And then I came out to Los Angeles and I'm auditioning for butt crack plumber. I'm auditioning (laughs) for, you know, homeless man number two. And I realized it has nothing to do with nobility. But at that point, it was the only thing I knew how to do. Yeah. And, I mean, can you believe it? We we were looking at your IMDb, and, you know, there are some years when you've got got like 10 movies coming out. You've been constantly working. You've been in over 200 movies. You know, some some small movies, some huge movies. The Philadelphia Experiment, by the way, one one of my favourite films. Um, uh, You're still working with things like the Goldbergs and stuff like that. Can you believe it? Can you believe that this incredible career and life that you've had and you are still having and you are still successful in? Yeah, it's it's shocking. Uh, right now, we just finished the third year of One Day at a Time on Netflix, and I don't know if it plays in England. If it does, you got to watch it. It's the most spectacular show. But it's it's like here it is. I'm almost sixty eight, I think. Wow. And I have been working on the best projects uh, all together in one chunk. I've ever worked on in my life uh, one day at a time is absolutely brilliant show it is uh, i've just checked it is on you, the uk netflix one day at a time so i'm, I'm having some of that this oh, weekend. well you got yeah you gotta watch it you gotta watch it it's absolutely hilarious and heartbreaking if you could believe both of those things in the same sentence and it's like an old traditional sitcom our executive producer norman lear like like the original one day at a time mm. but this really pushes it to the limit. What I tell everybody, we just premiered the third season. What I tell everybody, watch the first show of the first season. And if you don't flip, if you don't go like, wow, I love these people and I love this these stories. I, I mean, maybe it's not for you, but I got to tell you, it is we just got the rare 100% Rotten Tomato rating. No. Like saying like. That's yeah, incredible. 100%. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. TV Guide has come out over here and said it's one of the best shows ever produced. And it is. I mean, it's got, it, and this is happening now in my life. Yeah. You mentioned the Goldbergs. Goldbergs is, is an institution here in America. It's hilarious. Yeah. And it's a great show. I just finished doing two years on Silicon Valley, which I think they're showing in the UK. It's a now. great series, Silicon Valley. Yeah, I love it hilarious uh, all these things are happening to me now later in life and i i so appreciate it that, that i was able to do kind of iconic things in the past like groundhog day and other things and now i'm able to work with such great people like on one day at a time and great scripts i mean i mean really it, it's it's amazing i i I pinch myself all the time. You know that there's a TV channel over here that every Groundhog Day, they show the movie Groundhog Day all day. All day. It's one of the Sky Channels. You know that, Carol? Yes, I do It's know. one of the Sky Channels. They show it all 24 hours, Groundhog Day on a loop. Yes. Imagine. And, and I have to remind the listeners here, when Groundhog Day came out, it was not that well-reviewed. It got like three out of four stars. Oh, did it? Or- three and a half out of five stars. It was like considered very good for, for a kind of run of, for a typical Bill Murray movie. Yeah. And after the film had been out for like a month uh, at the theaters, I get a call 
from our producer, Trevor Albert, and he said, Stephen, we may have a hit. <laughs> and I go, really? He says, well, every week the box office keeps going up, wow. and it can't be the reviews, so it has to be word of mouth. And, and Ian, one of the, you want to talk about serendipity. Yeah. I think one of the miracles that's made Groundhog Day a classic and an evergreen is that we shot it in Woodstock, Illinois, and it was bitter cold when we shot it. And mm. so everyone in the movie is wearing winter scarves and coats and hats. And so there is no fashion to go out of. You, you know, go. winter clothing stays kind of the same. Yeah. But you don't have the shoulder pads. You don't have funny. the weird hairdos. Everybody's all bundled up, and it's so it it looks universal. I feel like I'm treating you like I've got a, a, a rock singer on, and I'm just putting a quarter in and just getting you to do your greatest hits every time. But, 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 <laughs> the story that I, I heard, and I phoned Kath up and said, Kath, you've got to listen to this episode. It's nuts. And then she phoned me back when she heard it, was when I think you were doing, like, what we call rep over here, like oh, yeah. summer stock theatre, and was is the guy called Vince, the the ex marine cook that you oh, have? Vinny, the cook, Vinny, Vinny. Yeah. Can, can we hear that? I mean, that is an incredible story. Oh well, well, we, we had no one could be a cook at this. You have to understand this dinner, this theater. It wasn't a dinner theater. It was like, uh, you, you know, we we did the classics. We did Oscar Wilde, but we had like no real audiences. So the manager of the theater managed to hook up our plays with the local prison and also the local insane asylum. So we would do importance of being earnest for prisoners, you know, and they come in rattling their shame. <laughs> is, is, is swearing legal on your station? What does it begin with? Uh, GDBS. I think we can say that once. Yeah, go on. Okay. So anyway, we we I'm playing Algernon yeah. in the importance of being earnest, and not a laugh, not a single <laughs> laugh, not a sound from the prisoners. You have to understand, this is one of the greatest plays ever crafted. It is one of the funniest plays. Not, not a laugh. The curtain is coming down at the end of Act One, and all I hear is a lone voice coming from the audience. How much longer we have to listen to all this goddamn bullshit? <laughs> and, <laughs> and you have to go back out we again. We have two more acts to do. We have two more acts to do. It was amazing. We. We did Midsummer Night's Dream for the Insane Asylum. And uh, one of the young men in the front row, like when the fairies came out of the forest, I'm playing bottom, pulled his pants down and, and uh, horrified all of us actors on the stage uh, as he did what he was going to do on the front row. And we're freaking out backstage, and the head of this theater said, Gang, just imagine you're performing for Shakespeare's audience. <laughs> Shakespeare's audience. This is so anyway, you couldn't keep a cook at this place. No. We ended up getting this ex-marine named Vinny. Yes. Uh, Vinny uh, as the cook. And uh, during Midsummer Night's Dream, I'm, we're, we're all 
he was Benny was crazy. We're, we're <laughs> all in there. We all have different jobs to do at the end of cooking. And I see people kind of vanishing during dinner. And uh, the head of the theater comes in to yell at us again. This is the guy who talked about Shakespeare's audience. He goes, Vinny did not poison the onions. <laughs> if anyone says Vinny has poisoned the onions, you could get your hat and coat and get the hell off the place. And I'm thinking like, what, what, what do you mean poison the onions? What are we talking about? Now, I'm looking at my plate. I just had like a whole beef stroganoff with a bunch of creamed onions. And I'm thinking like, huh, you know? So it was my job to help wash the dishes. Yeah. So I go back into the kitchen, and there's the big pot of onions, and there's a box of rat poison on the shelf open by the onions. I'm thinking, like, so I go talk to our technical director. I said, Tony, Tony, you know, I think maybe Vinny did poison the onion. And, and so we're all getting ready. The audience, uh, if you call it that, starts showing up at the theater, and people start vanishing, and I start hearing people throw up wow. all over the place. All the actors, this, this you have to imagine this sylvan scene, this theater existing in the beautiful mountains of upstate New York, now filled with actors running out into the bushes, vomiting. So <laughs> Al Maisel comes back saying, well, in the old tradition of the theater, the, the show must go on. <laughs> He put vomit buckets on each side of the stage. And so he says, just keep doing the play. And if you have to throw up, just work your way over to the vomit bucket, throw up, and keep going with the play. So I start getting terrible stomach cramps as bottom, which is a fairly sizable role, yeah. right before the play starts. And I begin puking. I'm sure your audience is at this point. So I am doing Bottom's Dream, and, I, and I'm looking out at the audience. They're still there. They're watching us like nothing. Like this is no strange thing. Like we have this actor on stage who's wandering over to one side of the stage, vomiting, <laughs> continues with his speech, wanders over to the other side of the stage, vomiting, fucking <laughs> keeps going, and they're still sitting there like it's normal. Now, some of the actors did not make it to the buckets. And the audience stays. They stay for the entire show. They applaud at the end. It was They amazing. applaud. I would hope so. <laughs> Wow. Oh, my Vinny, God. Vinny vanished in the night. Yeah. And we have no idea what happened to Vinny uh, as he tried to murder all of us. <laughs> <laughs> now, that brings us actually very smoothly to the man who refused to murder you. Oh, no. Listen, yeah, OK, listen, we'll, 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 we'll have, if you don't mind giving us one more story, Stephen, because I can listen to you all night, but we'll, let's have one more. Um, uh, because okay. I, I've, I've re I read this and then I saw a video of you talking about this. This is incredible. Steven Seagal, who, let's be honest, now in 2019, very thick, dark, lustrous hair. It's amazing. He's, I don't know what he's doing, but he's really looked after his hair. Um, you, good good, you, you, Very good genes. Um, you were in a movie with him. Um, he was yeah. quite, and he was quite, you had to kind of wait for him to wake up before you could audition or something, didn't you? Right. I, I had to audition for him at his house at 10 a.m., and his house, like I live, if you know Los Angeles, I live in the San Fernando Valley. He lived over 
in Beverly Hills. So it was quite a drive for me. But I got over there uh, in the morning, 10 a.m., knocked on his door. His housekeeper let me in. No Stephen to audition for. And I was told he is still asleep. He slept till 1230. Oh, no. I waited in his living room. I waited in his living room for two and a half hours before he comes down in his pajamas and said, so, uh, you know, in this movie, you are a serial killer, but I really want to feel the emotion from you. I really want you to cry. Are you able to cry? I said, well, I feel like crying right now. I could cry for you right So anyway, I, I... I have to shoot my scene with Steven Seagal the first day of shooting. And the number of times, now this is weird, Ian, the number of times in my career I have shot the first scene of a movie. Groundhog Day, Bill Murray and I began shooting that street scene the first first crack of dawn of the first day. Same thing with Glimmer Man. So John Gray, our, our director, came up to me in a hurry before we start shooting and he said, uh, got problems, Stephen. Uh, Stephen Seagal says he doesn't want to kill you in the scene anymore. Uh, he doesn't want to be violent. I go, he doesn't want to be violent. He goes, yeah, the people at Warner Brothers were telling him, Stephen, baby, Bubala, you dance with who brung you. I mean, that's all you do. You dance with who brung you. You know, they don't hire you because you're a great actor. They, you kill people. That's what you do. It's like hiring Bruce Lee and telling him, don't do any kung fu. That's what you do. So we have Steven Seagal, and he comes in and he says, you know, I've been thinking. Uh, I think it's bad karma to be killing people in this movie. And, and John Gray is standing behind Stephen, gesturing to me like, shut up, Stephen, to me. Don't talk. Don't say anything. And I said, well, Stephen, this is the way I see it. I see that actually you are helping my reincarnational development as a human being. I'm a, I'm a serial killer in this movie. I'm in agony. My soul is in agony. But if you kill me like you're supposed to, you're actually benefiting me and mankind. And he goes, I like that. So we do the scene. I capture a priest. Steven Seagal kills me. He kills me real good. In fact, in in the movie, they had set up this contraption to where he shoots me several times and my chest explodes. Yeah. And I fall out of frame. And Steven comes up with a smoking gun and looks down at me. And we cut out of that scene. So I think we're done. And then about two and a half months later, yeah. I get a panic phone call from John Gray, the director. And he said, Steven. We have a problem. Steven Seagal has been ad-libbing in the rest of the movie saying, thank God I didn't kill that guy in the church. Anyway, you could come in and add some lines to the scene to indicate that you're not dead. I go, well, well, sure. So I go over to see ADR, which, which is film talk, but that's when you add voice to a film that's already been shot you you take out swear words if you're doing deadwood or what you know yeah. you do all sorts of things so i'm looking at this shot i'm i'm there um with keenan ivory wayans he's he's watching too and steven shoots me my chest explodes 
I fall out of frame, blood flying everywhere. And John Gray says, now is when we want you to say something. <laughs> and I go, now? And, and Keenan Ivory Wayans just kind of looks at me, shakes his head. He goes, man, now we are in the area of high comedy. And he walks out. And I'm thinking like, I go, well, John, there's not much I could say. I mean, my chest is exploded. There's blood everywhere. You know, I, I, so he says, well, just try some things. So I fall out of frame after this brutal shooting. I go like, oh, you know, you just nicked me. Or, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a flesh wound. wound. <laughs> I, 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 I think I ended up saying, finish me, you bastard. <laughs> like that. What, what? They ended up cutting out the shot of my chest exploding, and then they had some shot of some guy wearing my costume just being shot very neatly, falling out of frame. They they just kind of re-edited it. And, uh, yeah, so that that was my experience with Steven Seagal. He, he was, uh, you know, he's the man that only Putin loves. <laughs> he's, he's, Stephen, you know. uh, listen, brother, thank you. Thank you so much. You, you, you have an open invitation. You you come on whenever you want. You have to you have to come over here and do, like, a, a one-man show as well. Come to the U.K. We'll sort it out. We'll get a theatre. We'll get you an audience. Come and do a one-man show here, Stephen. Hey, it's a deal. It's a deal. I got friends over there, too. I'd love to come over and see them and say hello. That's a deal. Let's make I'll, it happen. I'll give you guys a call from time to time. Oh, uh, listen, you've got my email. You are you you are welcome whenever you want. Um, listen, uh, the, One Day at a Time is the, the show. The season three is – I've checked it. It's all on uh, Netflix in the U.K., the Tobolowski Files is the podcast. Very quickly, are you doing any more of those, or is is that finished now, Stephen? No, no, no. I I was just telling uh, uh, David Ferrier from New Zealand, I've just finished seven more. Oh, great. Uh, David Chin, who's my uh, producer, he's working for Jeff Bezos now. He's, oh. He's really busy, so what oh, I do is yeah, I write and record the podcast. Mm-hmm. And then I give it to David, and then we finish them up together. So I'm going to try to get ten oh, together fantastic. and release those ten. Um, Stephen, it's, it's such a thrill. We've been so excited you coming on, and um, you 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 did not disappoint, sir. You are a, a, such a great storyteller. Oh, you made and me laugh so much. You thank really you. made us laugh. Thank you so much, Stephen. Well, thank you guys, and much love to all you folks on that side of the pond. Lovely. Stephen Tobolowski. Do you want to go and say goodbye oh, yeah. to him properly? Um, I mean, fanta- I cannot recommend <coughs> excuse me, the Tobolowski Files enough. Such a great podcast. My voice is going. <coughs> I've been laughing too much and it's done my throat and we're late for the news. Who cares? This is the Late Night Alternative with Ian and Kath on Talk Radio. Across the UK, online and on DAB. Talk Radio. We'll get you talking.